Welcome listeners to a brand new bonus episode of Oh My Word Podcast. And today we've got an awesome treat. We have Ray Buffer, an actor, singer, voiceover, recording artist, voice actor, person, and many other things. Ray, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you. I'm all those things and anything else you need me to be. And now you're a podcast guest. There you are. I'll yeah. add that to my resume. Right. So just as a general thing, we always start off with asking our guests, how'd you get into this? What came first? The singing, the acting, however long or short you want to give that answer. I'd have to say that I guess the acting came first because my early memory of acting is being like a town crier at kind of a school play at Victory Baptist Kindergarten when I was growing up. That memory, it's like an impression. I I don't have a lot of early memories, but I do have a memory of ringing the bell and saying, hear ye, hear ye, and and having an audience clap for me. And I think from there, I I got interested actually in telling stories, which kind of ties into your program. I was always engaged in creative writing through elementary and junior high. And then I think that actually led to my interest in music and drama. I started playing violin in elementary school through a feeder program. Then that evolved into string bass and viola and chorus singing. And then that evolved to drama and musical theater. And in high school, I was in musical theater productions. And I was the kid in high school who the coaches were after because even at 15 or 16, I was six foot two. I'm now six four. They were after me to play football. And I was the kid that got a, a note from my doctor saying that I had migraines and I couldn't take PE so that I could have an extra elective. I could be the kid that had orchestra, band, chorus, and drama all at the same time. Kind of like where I went. And then when I went to college, I I specialized in musical theater. And that was the career I had coming out of university. That's what I took with me through Florida, where I grew up. And when I moved out to California in 2000, I had to shift gears because immediately I realized I didn't know anyone out here. And the credits I had as a big fish in a small bowl in Florida didn't do me any good out here and I had to also reinvent myself within film and television so I kind of basically started over and built myself up from there oh wow okay follow-ups you kind of threw out there that you're kind of always into creative writing once that I guess prompted you to get into stage you didn't go back to the writing to think of oh this is gonna be the career option I'd rather be on stage and acting or singing I think what it was it was the creative side of it even in math I created creative math. Like I had an algebra teacher who didn't understand how I was multiplying certain numbers together. And it was because I was kind of thinking out of the box. I was being creative and lining my numbers up differently and rounding them and then subtracting them and getting to the to the solution quicker than maybe the student sitting next to me. And I think it was just the creative side. Writing was the natural conduit at first. And then when I realized, oh, I can also be creative as a musician or I can be creative as an actor, I gravitated more towards that once I discovered it. Being creative as an actor, someone who doesn't know how to act sees someone who knows how to act. It's wow, you know, how they do what they do. But at the same time, you do have a script that you've got to follow. So what are the parameters of that? How much space do you really have? Or where does the creativity really come in? So that's a complicated question because nowadays in Hollywood, there's a, a tendency to go more towards improvised environments. It's reality television and with shows like Curb Your Enthusiasm, they have just a broad kind of roadmap of where they're going with the story. But all the individual dialogue isn't necessarily scripted. Sometimes it's up to the actors to kind of bounce off of each other. And then the editor is really the one writing the show and once it's all said 
done. He just takes his footage and says, okay, this is where we want the story to go, and this is how we're lining it up. So now, nowadays, it's different than maybe back then when I was studying. But even when you're learning Shakespeare, you have to break up the beats. You have to understand what's written. You have to understand the words. You have to understand the message. And then you have to delve, and you have to understand the message that isn't being said. So you have to read between the lines, and even though it says one thing, you might see the motivation of the characters different, or they're saying the opposite of what they really mean. Then you have to get into the psychology of what's being said by that character and delve into that. So there's a lot of different layers you can go through. Right. That makes sense, and also what you said about the editing is so... Because sometimes you wonder, once a film comes out, you're like, who wrote this? But they might have chopped out a scene that was an important scene, and that's why there was like a gap somewhere or something like that. I know a lot of artists, they get pissed because either something they wrote got chopped up, or there's quite a few stories out there where even an A-list actor is in a, a film, and he goes to the red carpet event for the premiere of the movie, and he sits down, and he's watching the movie, waiting for his scene, and it never arrives because he was cut completely out of the movie. Oh, wow. No one bothered to tell him before he put on his tuxedo and did all the press junkets and went to sit down with his significant other to watch the movie. And there's a few few occasions where that happens. And then on the flip side, you can also have an awfully written script with bad acting, but you have a really good editor, and all of a sudden the, the thing actually looks really good because the editor is so good. So it all works together or it doesn't. It's funny. Writing is not so different because if you've got a good editor, they know how to push you. And you don't have to worry about other people involved because it's just you and the editor and all, you know, a bunch of actors. A good enough editor is really going to help frame the story sometimes. It's an interesting thing to think about. Shifting over a little bit, the voiceover acting, is that part of when you came out here, part of the reinvention? Is that when you started it or you started that before? You know, I do anything and everything at any time. I did some video game work back in the early 2000s, late 90s, actually, when I was living in Orlando. Then I didn't do any for a while. After about 2005 or six, I kind of went back to the grind of salary job and paying bills. And then I I had to get creative again, and I flipped back over and started producing and directing some theater for a while. And then decided that was drying up and I needed to pay bills again and went back and did the salary kind of grind again. But since about 2018, I'd say, I've been kind of going full force with the whole actor, singer, voiceover artist kind of thing. And since that time, I've, I've had a handful of voiceover jobs, but not a lot. I had one just this morning, actually, but it, they've been few and far between. And it's like, I'm not quite getting it because everything I work on, the first thing someone says to me is, oh, wow, you have such a resonant voice. You have, I could hear you doing voiceovers. Well, I wish the people that paid would, would hear me doing voiceovers. <laughs> but, I, you know, it could be my demos. It could be the, the things that I'm, I'm self-recording because now the the industry has gone we don't go to auditions as much anymore we don't have castings because of covid and we do a lot of self-taping at home now it's the new easy way to submit for jobs but by doing self-tapes you have to be your own cameraman your own costumer your own lighting person and then you have to try to make sure that your self-tape is better than the next person's self-tape and it becomes kind of convoluted it was easier at the beginning and now it's gotten to the point where every casting director every producer has a list of things you have to do and they're all different every time you do a self-tape and so it takes a lot of time and then it takes a lot of time to upload the self-tapes so that they can be seen and it's a different world and we're just all adapting to it yeah when you mentioned that you did voiceovers for video games, how does that work? Are you just given the, the script and lines of dialogue, or do you actually get to see what it looks like? Typically, the voice stuff is done first. 
because then the visual artists do the animation. They have to sync the lips of the character to what you've recorded in audio. So typically that's the way it's done. I guess it could be done the other way, but it's harder to sync sound to a visual. It's easier to just draw the character as needed. So that's been my experience. It would be just like singing a song for a record to a recording studio and you're in a soundproof booth and you read the script and you take direction and you do a few takes. And the project I did this morning, he's a singing bear. So he's a bear that has dialogue, but then he also sings. So there were a few lines I had to sing for the backing track. That's fun. So you don't even know when you're doing the video or even anything that you're doing, they, they're doing the audio first. How much of it do you know what it's actually going to look like? They don't show you, this is the bear that you're going to be. They don't show you that. They just tell you you're a singing bear. Yeah, typically they don't, I don't think, because sometimes they haven't even conceived the visual. Usually they might have a storyboard or an image they can show you. This is what we're thinking the character's going to look like. This project I did this morning, they actually did show me because it's an animatronic bear that they're going to be using. So they have to program, I guess, the bear's mouth to move in sync with what I was saying. And interestingly enough, since you asked, there were times this morning as I was recording that I would say words like Goldilocks, but the triplet rhythm, Goldilocks, Goldilocks. But if I say it too fast, they know already that the animatronic bear's mouth will not work fast enough to sync. So I'd have to spread it out a little bit, Goldilocks, so that they had time to move the bear's mouth once it gets time to program it. Little interesting things that happen that you learn. Does it make it easier or harder or it's all the same to you if you've actually seen what it looks like? Is it easier to get into the voice you've got to do? It's kind of a funny story because when they called me to do this part, let me back up a little bit and say that one of the challenges of auditioning for an actor is not looking in the rear view mirror at something you've auditioned for. The best thing psychologically an actor can do is throw the sides away after they've done the audition and forget about it because there's a lot of actors stop being actors because they psych themselves out. They have this running monologue in their head. Oh, did they like me? When are they going to call me? Oh, I felt really good about that. Why haven't they called me yet? Maybe they didn't like me. I wonder if they got my tape. Did they see it yet? You have all this anxiety that can build. And one way that I combat that is out of sight, out of mind. I throw the script away as soon as I've recorded it. And I forget about the project. So two weeks later, they call me and they say, hey, we want you to be the bear in this project. And I'm like, okay. And I'm thinking, well, am I going to be a live action bear? Am I going to be in a costume? Are they doing prosthetics or is it just a metaphor? So I'm actually thinking it's a live action job. And then the night before I have to go in, they say, oh, no, it's just voiceover. You're going to a recording studio and we're going to do an animatronic bear. And here, here's a picture of the bear. Here's a, a video of how his mouth moves. And I'm mm. like, oh, OK. But, you know, I find that out maybe the day before I go record. And so I guess the point of my story is that we have to go with the flow because sometimes we don't have a lot of information and we purposely forget because if I have 25 things I've auditioned for, I don't remember every project and keep it in my brain. Right. That sounds like writers trying to query agents or publishers because you could sit on that for a long time and then it's the same soundtrack. The monologue will start playing. Did they like me? How come I haven't heard from anyone yet? <laughs> Right. Okay, so using this bear specifically, now that we have this to focus on, when you saw the bear, you saw the way the mouth moved. Is your thought just, okay, they like the timbre of my voice, like my pitch, I just got to go in there and just do something? Or do you try to give the bear a personality now? Or you have to wait for the script to see if the, what the bear is kind of like? like what, what is that like? Those are all valid questions. I asked some of them. And, and actually, 
I pointed out to the writers that some of what they wrote was a little counterintuitive because when I think of a bear, I think of Smokey the Bear. Yeah. You know, only you can, you know, avoid forest fires. <laughs> you know, it's like, but he's got a low and slow voice and delivery. And I, that's why I think, think of bears as these lumbering creatures. But the rhythm of the music and, and there was a little demo track of the dialogue of the writers saying, saying it in the space that they had in the music because with musicals in general, sometimes you have a measure of rest in which dialogue can be said, and then you have to clear in time for the next vocal line and the next measure. So you might have four beats to say three sentences. So what that does is it compresses and speeds up the dialogue. My point to the writers was, I think of a bear as, as low and slow, but the pitches you've written for this character are more like tenor pitches. They're, they're a higher male voice, and that's also very fast. It's a very, very, very speedy. So there was a little bit of resistance because where I was fighting my instincts for the character. And they wanted more of an R&B delivery. So I just tried to channel that, make him a little soulful and get the words out quickly, put him an octave higher in my voice, and the job is done. Is this a magic that actors have? Or is there actually a method of putting yourself in the rhythm blues Okay, I gotta be rhythm and blues, so I'm gonna imagine myself in an R&B bar, certain tracks that I like. Everyone might have their own process for it, but... I think the comparison they used for this project was Audrey, the plant from The Little Shop of Horrors. Do you recall, Feed me, Seymour! You know, is that kind of point? <laughs> that was essentially what I tried to channel, but okay. also put some bear growl into the voice. So if I were to say that same line as a bear, it might be, Feed me, Seymour! <laughs> you know, so there's a little more growl going into it, making him more bear-like. That's essentially what all it was, was combining various ideas Here's the thing that interests me the most about the voiceover parts is that there's a lot of acting involved and, and everything like that, but a lot of it is also what writers would call tone. So when they're telling you, oh, go lower or higher, do you just kind of, okay, I'll just pitch my voice lower and hope this is what they mean? Or is there actually something more to it than that? I yeah. think it depends on the actor, too. It depends on what tool they have to use. I'm a bass baritone, so it's easier for me to do things that are lower. If I do things that are higher then I need to be louder, probably. And so there's concessions that have to be made. If they want me to sing a tenor note at the top of my range, that's probably going to be full volume, or it's going to be a, a falsetto sound. It's going to be a, using the feminine side of my voice. But yeah, I mean, I, the thing I haven't delved too much into are the character voicing. The little kid voice! I haven't booked any of those things, probably because I'm not very good at it. But it is something that would be good for me to tackle. Part of your training for this, do you just sit and listen to people? You just try to accumulate sound or how are you tapping into these things? You want to start looking it up according to what the job is? Yes, I spent three months in a cave with a real bear. And, uh... <laughs> well, I, you can develop like a repertoire of voices by just inventing them or imitating people you know, I guess is probably a better way of asking the question. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I think there are just some things that come normally to me, like a southern accent's easiest because I grew up in Florida. I just stop suppressing my diction a little bit and it just comes out. Other things take a little more time when you get into accents and different voices. I've never been one of those people that on a dime can turn around and do a perfect Irish accent. It takes time. It's, I'll have to spend some time listening to dialect tape or someone explaining the vowel of that particular region and then rehearse it a little bit in my voice until I start to like do it like naturally live in it for a little bit and and then it's there but yeah it's hard very hard for me just to turn it on 
Would you say that acting is a strong combination of creativity and imitation? Creativity and imitation? Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think it's necessarily imitation because it's listening, really. It's taking what, what happens around you and channeling it into your response through the written dialogue. It depends on what you're being given around you. If yeah. you have got an actor who's saying their lines a certain way, it's going to affect how you respond to them, even though the dialogue is always going to be the same. Your inflections, your tone, whether you're angry in your response or mundane or happy or sad, it's all going to be influenced by what you're listening to. So mm -hmm. I think it's creativity and listening and, and responding. It's just funny that so many things that you're talking about with acting... I could almost transpose a word and use the exact same thing for writing. Channeling what you've got around you. Yeah, writers have to be able to do that if they're going to write about life. Or I mean, it's obviously a different skill set, but it's interesting how there's a lot of familiar tools, I guess you could say. I don't know too much about the controversy around the issue, but I know there is an issue uh, with actors sometimes feeling like they should be credited as writers on shows because... There is now such a, a drive towards the improv side of things. Sometimes a director will just let an actor go completely into left field. They'll create monologues on the spot, but they're in character doing it. It's a pouring out of emotion within that character, or it's, a, it's what they feel because now they've been surrounded by the set and the other actors and the situation that they're in and how they feel the character would respond to that situation, not necessarily what the writer told them that they should feel. And so then they do it and they, they film it and the director decides to use it. But that actor doesn't necessarily get a writing credit for that scene, even though the writer didn't actually write all the words in that monologue. So it's interesting. That happens more and more frequently, I think. It's going to be writers are going to start licensing their characters. <laughs> we figured out the solution. Look at that. And then just to also ask, when you are doing the voice acting or coming in to do this character, are you given all the specifics as far as the characters like, whatever the emotional tone they're looking for, cadence or, or anything that would be involved in it? Or are they kind of like, well, he's a happy bear, but happy can mean a hundred different things. And as long as you're sounding upbeat, they'll, they're willing to hear what you'll come up with. Yeah, I think they, they leave it up to me to explore a little bit. And then if I don't ex explore it the right way <laughs> or the way that they've preconceived in the back of their mind, then they'll come out and say, oh, well, try it this way. Or think about he just can't wait until she leaves. So give give me the impression that he's in a rush and he just wants her to leave. So then I redo that scene and, and say those lines and, and with that kind of a mindset. It's a collaborative process. Sometimes I will go in a direction that they haven't thought of, really, and they wrote it. But, but they like it. It's a creative direction they hadn't considered, and we keep it. And then sometimes I go completely opposite of what they intend, and then they have to reel me in and say, well, no, no, we want it to be more like this. Does it take a long time, the recordings? Or does it depend on who's behind the wheel, kind of? Yeah, it all depends. It depends on the, the experience of the people you're working with. Sometimes it can take a long time, and sometimes it can be one and done. That's the actor's dream, is to do it in one take. Sometimes the take they like is the one the actor doesn't like. That's kind of hard because then you feel like, wow, I don't even know if I want to hear this thing once it comes out because I don't really like that take. Have you ever heard something come on that you've done and you're like, wait, that's me? Oh, yeah, yeah. Or I've seen things come out that I've done and I've swept it under the rug and I won't tell anyone about it. <laughs> <laughs> moving right along, moving right yeah, along. Yeah, moving right along. Don't look that way. Right, yeah. <laughs> Have you ever thought of or tried audiobooks, or is that kind of different than the voice acting? Because it's a much longer, more invested thing. That's not kind of what you're looking for. 
Yeah, it's a longer form. Yeah. I actually did a couple of spec audiobooks. I uploaded up to YouTube. They were like short stories. But I kind of wanted to put them out there just in case anybody heard my voice and thought, hey, I, I'm a self-publishing my book and I'd like him to do my audiobook and you know, or, or whatever the case might be. So yeah, I have a couple up on YouTube. So if they Google my name and audiobook or probably just throw my name in Google, it'll come up. They were like public domain stories. Yeah. Did that feel similar to you as just any, you know, regular recording job or did that feel a little bit different reading a, a story? Well, what's different is that in some cases, especially if there's lots of characters, you have to come up with a little bit of a different voice and inflection for each character. So that mm -hmm. is kind of fun. But when you're doing the feminine voice, you're a little softer in your delivery. And then you're doing the man voice. It's interesting to try to figure out, okay, well, uh, I've got three characters I need to distinguish between. How, how am I going to make them different and still be consistent in voicing them so that a listener can say, okay, I, I'm following this without being told. And then she said, and then he said, right. <laughs> you know, I enjoyed it. I wouldn't mind doing more of it. The straight narration is easy because then it's just one voice. You're just reading the story. But when you get into character voices, that, that's where it gets tricky. But yeah. it's fun. In a story, you'll have more detail about whatever's going on. Does that get you into character more? Or it's not necessarily... The hard part, there's probably easier ways of actually doing it that maybe I don't know because I'm, I'm not a recording engineer, but it's just getting the voices consistent. If you got three characters and they're all pitched differently, you want to make sure that when you go back to the female voice that you're still in the same timbre, the same. You don't make her sound different when you go back to her line than she sounded the last time she spoke. And when you're going between characters, that can be tricky. It's probably better to find a way to record all the lines of one character at one time and then edit them together. That would be annoying. <laughs> that would be annoying. That would be tricky because yeah. that's a, a lot of editing, right? Right. I know some people keep sound files on the side if they have to rehear the voice that they use. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Everything's time. And then one more question about that. And we got to ask about one more thing that we said we'd talk about. Does it feel different when you're in a recording booth than being on stage? On stage, one of the big, biggest things is that you have instant audience feedback. You could maybe possibly sort of adjust as you're going along according to that, or it's just the feel of it is different. Or when you're in a booth, you're in front of a mic, it's just you're just channeling that actor part of you. And so whether or not you're hearing the applause, you're, just, you're in the moment, you're doing it. Does it feel kind of, is it same, different? Have you ever watched behind the scene videos of people on sound booths? Yeah. They're not necessarily pleasant to watch because when you're focused on the audio sound, you don't really care what you physically look like. <laughs> so, the, so the mouth stretches out. You're over-exaggerating. You're over-enunciating. You're spitting. There are things happening because you're trying to maximize everything with your mouth because okay. that's what it's all about in, in a recording booth. It's a whole different approach. Or when you're on stage, you, you care about what people see. It's a visual thing. You have to enunciate and be understood by them, but it has to be physically appealing or, you know, it has to be something that you, you don't mind them seeing. You kind of um, take your guard down when you're in an audio booth and you just try to forget that there's a recording engineer seeing you look completely stupid while you're spitting and over-enunciating. Right. You, know? you also don't have the body language to give certain kind of as visual clues or subtleties or whatever else. People move around. They act in the audio booth. I have to growl as a bear. I might put my hands up in the air and try to emulate that bear. Even though no one's going to see me do it, it still has an effect on the audio output. It puts you more into the character so that it, it sounds more appropriate. I can visualize it almost. You're just growling at the mic or something. Yeah. <laughs> another part, another hat, and that we said that we mentioned this, 
was that you collect original comic books, old, old comic books. How do we describe that? Well, yeah, they're vintage. A lot of collectors now, a lot of comic book collectors, they're, they're collecting books from the 70s because that's the age of the, the collectors today. They're, they're collecting books from that time because that's maybe when they grew up. So most of the collectors are in their 40s or whatever, and they, they buy books that are nostalgic to them. But I, yeah, I collect books from World War II era. I'm, I'm more what would be called a golden age collector. So I like the books that are politically incorrect nowadays, but the, it kind of showed propaganda and they showed that's back when we called Asians Japs and yeah. we had Nazis and Hitler on the cover and Superman or Captain Marvel or someone coming down and smashing a German tank or something. It's emblematic of the era. It's a, a representation of the times. I like it because it also shows how far we've come that we now consider those things maybe in bad taste, even though it was a time of war. Those were our enemies. It's interesting. And also because of the, the time that, you know, there's a paper drive back in World War II, so comic books were being recycled and burned or what, what have you. They were, so that makes them rarer, more scarce. So I just think it's interesting to collect those and preserve them, and, and they're valuable. So it's uh, also kind of an investment kind of idea. Yeah. You don't think they get away with having uh, Captain America punch Hitler in the face these days? On the cover? <laughs> they would. I mean, they probably have revisited the idea and showed it. It doesn't have the same cultural significance now as it did back then because right. it was the time. Who knows? Maybe it'll be Putin and someone punching Putin in the face. <laughs> These are weird times that we're in. It'll be interesting to see what the next few years hold. Right. Do you also read the more modern comic books or you're just strictly Golden Age comic books? Yeah, I mean, I look at them, I look at where they're going. My nostalgia factor is from the 70s and 80s when I grew up, so those occasionally I'll pick up something that I used to have when I was a kid or that I used to have in my former collection before I gave it up. I see where things are going. We live in a world now where it seems like 80% of the movies are comic book adaptions. Yeah. So, and back when I grew up in the 70s and 80s, it was like that was the time when Superman the movie and Batman the movie, and those were just coming out. We were just beginning this avalanche of comic book adaptations. That's the ones that hold a special place in my heart. But I enjoy seeing all the new things that are coming out now. and it's It's almost an overload. Do you kind of see, and it's very possible this is a question that's not so simply answered, in case you have a straightforward answer for it, would you say that you kind of see between the changes that occur in the comic books and the way people are now, do they feed each other, do you think, or does one come before the other? You start seeing certain shifts and the comic books have to catch up to those shifts? Yeah, I, I think what I see is writers in the comic book realm are writing with an eye towards that Netflix series. So I, I think they're writing the comic book saying, oh, I hope they pick it up. I hope that this is my demo for Hulu or HBO to read this comic series and then buy the rights from me and make me rich. I see that as being an avenue now for those writers. And then on the flip side, I think there's fewer comic book readers. We live in such a short attention span environment that the new comic books are actually on the big screen. People are watching their comic books. They're not reading them anymore. I might be totally off base. I mean, even now when you buy a comic book, that sometimes they, the comic book companies don't even make that many of them. So they have to go to a second or third printing when it's really popular. It used to be that you didn't have to do that. It used to be the comic books were so popular that they could print two or 300,000 of one issue and they knew they were going to sell most of them. But now it's like the companies are hedging their bets and printing a limited run and then printing more if they need to. 
Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. It's sort of like what you just said, but I had a teacher who said that our modern art is film. Film is our modern art. And mm. I've heard from someone, I think they actually read an article, so I don't know where it originally comes from, that our quote-unquote, like our classical music, quote-unquote the classical music of today, are the scores for films. Would you say there's truth to that? Yeah, I would certainly say that. People like Philip Glass, who writes some abstract music, and, and sometimes it's used in, in artsy films. He writes opera as well. I would say that, yeah, I think the scores of some of these big blockbuster films, I don't think you necessarily hear them on NPR or public yeah. radio during the classical hour, but I think people buy them and listen to them thinking that that is the classical music of today. I used to love to listen to John Williams' score for Superman the movie, and I would listen, I think it was Alan Silvestri's score for Back to the Future. The thing about listening to those scores is they make you relive the feeling of watching that movie for the first time because there's some kind of psychosomatic connection in your memory. And so it brings that dopamine back. Maybe that's the attraction to movie scores and listening to them. That's like sometimes something's really popular. I think they did it with Game of Thrones, right? They did a whole orchestra thing for it. There's like a big musical performance of all the tracks of it. Yeah. It's, yeah. I know comic books a little bit, but it seems like everything's gotten much more, well, darker or emotionally dense. Original Batmans were just, well, obviously the Batman detectives, but we're just going to fight and we're just going to do stuff. And now everything has to be much more introspective. There has to be much more uh, digging, I guess, into the character. Yeah, I, I think they're a lot more psychological. They used to be a little more surfacey back yeah. in the day. In the 70s and 80s, there, there used to be a lot of editor notes, too. It's funny because you would read a comic. There would be at least four or five instances every comic where an editor would make a note saying, oh, yes, and this harkens back to Batman number 416 when he encountered the fruit bat for the first time or whatever. <laughs> there was like a, always these footnotes. But now I think the writers are basically just, again, they're writing it with the idea that it's cinematic it has its own existence and it's confined within its own beginning middle and end it's like when the writers come on to the comics it's almost like they're being given free license to reinvent the character what that's causing are all these variations in characters now I and mean, marvel and dc they both have these multiverses with alternate realities parallel universes where there's a Batman who's a vampire on one planet. There's a Batman who was actually Thomas Wayne instead of Bruce Wayne. They have all these variations coexisting in a multiverse now. So it almost gives the writers more leeway to write anything and everything they feel like writing. Whereas back in the day, there were a lot of limitations. Well, because also how many times is Batman going to fight the Joker in the same exact setting? Right. And then it's like, well, everyone loves the Joker. You have to bring the Joker in. Well, yeah. Oh, he escaped. He escaped the asylum again. Okay. It's almost like how many times can you watch Shakespeare? That's why theaters now, they'll take the Tempest and instead of putting it in an actual, the period it belongs in, it'll be the Tempest on the surface of Mars or the, the Tempest on a space station. And so I think the same thing's happening with comic books now. How many times can Batman fight the Joker? Well, this is Joker if he was born on Krypton or this is the Joker of Earth 419 where he's permanently a child. They invent these variations so they can retell the same characters in different circumstances. Yeah. Okay. I got one more question and we're going to wrap up. And only because you just mentioned it. They say, oh, you know, how many times can you watch The Tempest? Have you ever been, and this is for you personally, you've played a role of something that's a, either a familiar role or that somebody great once played it. Do you go and watch, let me see the great doing Hamlet before I do Hamlet, or is it just, this is about me coming on with my version of it? 
Yeah, I think you watch it to see where they got their inspiration from. The greats, their performance is also based on the set and the director and the co-stars right. and the time and the right. costumes. My performance in that same role is going to be different because it's a different time, it's a different place, it's a different group of people putting it together. And the stimulation, the outside forces are going to be different on me if I'm listening as an actor and I'm, I'm observing my environment, I can't have the same performance that someone else had 40 years ago because I'm in a completely different situation. So it might be the same character, the same lines, but I think my delivery is going to be different. And also the tools I have to use are different. I'm not in their body, I'm in my body. So yeah. I have to do it to the best of my ability with my voice and my body. When I did Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, I did a, a brief run of that. I would watch Howard Keel. Yeah. And he would sing Sobbing Women and A Woman Ought to Know Her Place. And I would kind of see where he was going with it. And I would say, well, the, I understand that, but I'm going to try it this way. Or I'm going to do it a little different. Or maybe I'm going to pop up the octave on this note because I can do that with my voice. And maybe he could too, but he didn't choose to. You make different choices. That's a really good insight of how kind of like the same story could be told and it could always be told differently. That's good. I'm going to I'm going to end with that cuz that, that's really really good. I mean I, everything else was also good, but this is really good. I want to give you fresh. It's very insightful. It's very good. I like this. Anyway, we always wrap up with this kind of fill in the blank of I really like it when you do know, stories, actors, directors, anything that story like does X and I really don't like it when any one of those do X. So how would you fill in the blank for that? Well, I would just say that being in the industry, I I tend to always guess correctly when I'm watching like a whodunit or <laughs> a mystery or I can spot the red herrings. So I really like it when a writer surprises me. And what I don't like is when they give me some obvious red herrings and I detect them right away. There's a lot of foreshadowing in stories, you know, where a writer will plant an idea and try to sweep it under the rug so you barely notice it, but it pays off later in the story. I hate when I notice those things. It takes me out of the story, but you, I like it when they can sneak it by me. Ah, well, are you looking for it, or it's or kind of both? I think I naturally kind of sense to keep my radar up for it, but there are a few times that I'll have my, my ears up, and they'll give me a good red herring, and I will be convinced that it's going to pay off at the end, and actually it goes completely different. Can you say the last film off the top of your head or story off the top of your head that, that did surprise you? What I'm watching now that I'm actually pretty engaged in is From, F-R-O-M. I think it's on Epics or something. It's a series. And it's one of those that won't let you watch the whole season at one time. You have to wait each week for a new episode. Oh, they have those I still? <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what's up with that. Yeah. I'm so spoiled by, by all these <laughs> uh, streaming services. It has uh, the guy, the actor who was at Lost, and he's in a very similar story here. From is it, it seems to be patterned after loss because it's this group of people that find themselves in a small town and they can't escape. They can't escape from the town and they don't know why they were chosen to be together in this one place. And there are trees that you can drop things into and things will like drop from the sky when you drop them down a tree. There's some kind of law of physics, metaphysical alien weird purgatory <laughs> kind of theme going on here and it's a mystery so it's one of those things where you can't can't quite put your finger on yet it's like lost very good i recommend it oh very good well ray thank you so much for joining me today so i don't know how we were able to 
only talk about so few things when you've got so much to talk about, but we managed. Somehow we managed. Well, I'll come back sometime, but it was pleasant talking to you too. This was a bonus episode of Oh My Work podcast featuring actor, singer, voice recording artist, Ray Buffer. To find out more about Ray and his work, please check out the link in the episode notes. To find out more about Oh My Work podcast and to keep track of all the great stuff we're up to, please follow us on Instagram at Oh My Work podcast or check us out at el10mountain.com. Music is by Tim Burke. Thank you so much for joining us. Catch you next time.